This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Radiotherapy Enter 2018. It's our first show of the year and hot off the presses with news from Great Strides Forward in preventing HIV infection, understanding the molecular basis of mental illness, and a new and better understanding of Darren Aronofsky's widely misunderstood movie, Mother. And a special thank you to multi-talented Kent for fixing my microphone just two seconds before we went on air this morning. We're starting off with a few snippets of news from around the world of medicine. Uh, And then we'll launch into the program for today. The good Dr Sharma is back with us. Hello. Hello. Morning. uh, With quite groundbreaking information on the new state of play in actually preventing HIV infection, um, in which the Australian government might be leading the world. Yeah, we are. Excellent. (laughs) I'll look forward to you telling me more about that. Lady Gaga. Hello, Lady Gaga. Hello, good morning. Good morning. She's back in Melbourne today talking about peer support and the many ways in which people can access it and its powerful positive effect on mental health. She might also briefly rant about corn chips, but only for about three and a half minutes. Oh, those corn chips. (laughs) Did you bring some? (laughs) No, I refuse. We should have brought some across. You could crunch them on air. Oh, next time. Loudly. I'm going to. Oh, I like that. Yeah. (laughs) Feminist corn chip crunching. Um, And our resident film and popular culture expert, SK, will be talking about the very variably reviewed movie Mother that came out last year. It's a really, really polarising film, but I'm, I'm mostly looking forward to the discussion about feminist corn chips. How, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that'll be illuminating for all of us. Um, but actually, I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you're going to say about Mother, actually, because no, nobody that I read about in my brief survey across the internet yesterday had terribly much positive to say about it, but it has this amazing cast. It's got Jennifer Lawrence, it's got Michelle Pfeiffer, it's got Javier Bardem. And Ed Harris as well. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I, I think the reason it polarises audiences is that there's no easy key to understanding it, so uh, notwithstanding terrible plot spoilers, uh, I'll try and demystify it today. Thank you. I look forward to that. So... Ah, Happy New Year, everybody. Um, I have to admit, I've mostly failed all of my New Year's resolutions, which are mostly about healthy eating and yoga so far. But there is one thing that I'm determined to follow through on for my sake and for the sake of listeners everywhere, um, which is that this hour will henceforth be a Donald Trump-free hour. (laughs) Because last year I think I developed a Trump-related anxiety disorder, wondering if the world was going to end in a nuclear explosion before I had a chance to refresh the Washington Post app on my phone. This year, no more. This hour... (laughs) listeners, will be all about groundbreaking new advances in science, particularly in mental health. It will be exciting and inspiring and it will have nothing to do with Donald Trump. So there, back to the world of science news. Well, not much that's exciting and inspiring does have to do with Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Exciting, not necessarily in a good way, I think, but hopefully we'll be talking about, you know, advances and developments Mm. and progress. A more positive note. Yeah, that's right. So... Um, shall we talk about the news in medicine and science? Okay, I'll get going. Um, so, just for a little bit of catch-up, the Tasmanian Liberals have announced a massive new funding package for mental health as part of their pitch for the state election. $95 million in funding, including a new adolescent inpatient unit at the Royal Hobart Hospital, uh, eight new beds in the children's ward at Launceston, and 25 extra adult beds, increased housing and rehabilitation services for people living with a mental illness, and workers focusing on supporting people transitioning from hospital to the outside world, which is all very positive. Sounds good. Uh, off the 
off the bat, but uh, the Royal Hobart Hospital has had some problems, I believe, in terms of psychiatry in the last six months. I believe they lost accreditation for their training posts for their junior psychiatrists. Yeah, I think that's Which doesn't right. necessarily say a lot about the quality of the service. Maybe there's been a need for increased resources down there for some time. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's sometimes only when things are in dire need of improvement that they actually get the funding dollars. So, In fact, that was one of the only good things to come out of the Oakton uh, disaster in South Australia last year. It's put aged person's mental health back on the agenda for government and uh, some money has been forthcoming. Mm. But yeah, often it takes a crisis to bring things to a head. Can you briefly talk to me about the Oakton disaster? I wasn't aware of that one. Okay, Oakton was a uh, psychogeriatric nursing home. So basically it was a nursing home uh, that catered specifically for the needs with people with enduring psychiatric illness, with behavioural disturbances. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the residents there suffered dementia, but uh, some had the more traditional psychiatric illnesses as well. It was a state government-run facility, and uh, through essentially decades of government and health service neglect, uh, the facility's quality of care ran down, and there were some well-publicised abuses of residents that were brought to light through the hard work of relatives, and it was a major scandal in South Australia last year. So that facility subsequently been closed down, the residents have been moved out, and it's created an impetus for increased funding for aged persons' mental health. Mm. Interesting. So things need to get to that kind of terrible nadir point before anyone really thinks about making changes. Unfortunately, that's the world we live in. Yeah, uh, yeah age person's mental health doesn't seem to be a particularly sexy topic for uh, health reporters. So it's, it's largely a, a dirty little secret that health networks chronically underfund and trim money from at any opportunity. Mm. Grim. Recipe for disaster. Yeah, so it seems. On a more positive note... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I I saw an article actually in the conversation yesterday which talked a little bit about um, the high rates of anxiety and depression in uh, young people attending university. Um, That was a sort of North American study, but I think it's probably also true for us in Australia. They talked about the factors that might be at play, um, financial stress, academic stress, um, social isolation. But they also focused on um, things which millennials might be more familiar with. Are you also a millennial, Dr Sharma? How how old do I need? to, to, uh, to uh, not be, to be millennial? I think uh. you have to have an active social media presence to qualify. <laughs> uh, all right, fine. Yes. Guilty as charged. Yeah. Um, no, look, I've, I've certainly, uh, in my work as a general practitioner, I work uh, near university campuses. I see a lot of young university students. And you, you first, my first instinct otherwise to look at that 20% number of anxiety and depression would have been, no, you know, not really, until I started working in those areas. Um, yeah, I see, you know, I guess a particularly at-risk population, the, 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 the kind who keep to keep, uh, tend to keep attending general practitioners. Um, but there's a lot of uh, students with these issues who you know, they don't really realise that's what's going on. And there's particularly some at-risk groups. I think international students is a, a completely... Uh, unsuspected population uh, it's being away from 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 your family from your culture uh, some language barriers as well An academic study can be very difficult in that way and uh, the, it's very difficult to get enough psychological help I mean no matter whether you're international or local mm. often those university uh, psychologists have huge mm. waiting lines and it's it's really genuinely difficult for, for people to get some help sometimes yeah, yeah. So I think those are universal themes, um, and they do definitely apply in Australia as well. Um, they talked also about um, cyberbullying and the impact of cyberbullying on you know younger people, and I suppose that includes people at university as well, um, and also people 
taking Ritalin for study, um, which I thought were two things which weren't an issue in my day, but mm. I do remember being quite stressed at university. But certainly these things add, I get an extra layer of complexity to people's lives. Not only Ritalin do uh, students take nowadays, but they're also taking the anti-Alzheimer's drugs, the cognitive enhancers. There's a thriving black market out there for what are called nootropic drugs uh, to, to give you the cognitive edge over the competition. Lady Gaga, you look like you know that. that that's I've, true. I've heard about that, that drug once or twice. <laughs> Is that right? In this context? Mm-mm-mm. As a, a cognitive, as you said, um, SK, as a cognitive enhancer. Mm-hmm. Ah, and does it work? This is the big question. Oh, look, I think it does. I mean, if we all took these medications, you know, our uh, IQs might go up a couple of points. Certainly the, uh, the psychostimulants, so things like Ritalin and dexamphetamine, can improve, improve attention and concentration to enable you to study for long periods. Uh, mm. So there, there is an edge to be got, and that's, uh, you know, one of the ethical issues that we face with modern medicine, I suppose. I do wonder, though, if a lot of this stuff ends up in the long term being a bit of a false economy. Um, yeah, the main reason, certainly for, for my uh, slight underperformance in university, was just leaving things till the last moment. And I really wonder how I would have responded to a lot of those drugs in university. I think I would have just let it to, to the last 30 seconds instead of the last minute. Yeah. So I don't really know how well, much of a difference it's going to make. There. Maybe that's true. I had a massive panic attack in the middle of the exam, half an hour after you'd taken whatever it was that you needed to turn all those um, synapses on and get them firing. The general rule is if you're going to take something, make sure you've taken it before you sit the exam (laughs) in a safe setting so that that doesn't happen to you. Is, is that really the message we're sending to us? <laughs> it's, it's Maybe it's, 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 a, it's a harm minimisation approach, perhaps. Absolutely. I actually want to ask you about your work with the university students in general practice. I mean, do you see uh, help-seeking behaviour from young males? Because I know when I was in medical school, we were taught that the average male between the ages of 20 and 30 years in that decade sees their general practitioner once. So with the people who are coming along with problems for anxiety and depression, what proportions seem to be males versus females? Uh, In my experience, off the top of my head, it's probably about four to one, three to one, uh, female to male. Um, It's, yeah, it's, it's uncommon... Uh, compared to, to women who are, I guess, far more kind of honest with themselves uh, to, to kind of come forward with a lot of these things. Often when I do see young men in that age group, they really are at mm, crisis point, maybe a little bit, a little bit away from it. Uh, so things generally have to get pretty uh, darn bad. And so uh, with a lot of them, I see that they've been self-medicating uh, in other ways with uh, borrowed medication or, or alcohol or, or other illicit substances by that point. So it, it's that gender imbalance that still exists, which is, which is problematic. Um, but uh, on the other hand, you know, when people do come, I think there's still a lot of trust they, they place in... In, in the medical you know, community and doctors and they can just be quite upfront and just you know, kind of say it when they need to. But you certainly see the young males who are not quite ready to open up yet uh, in a way that you, you don't tend to see as much in, uh, in some of our female patients. Mm-hmm. And the, the focus on university students, you know, one imagines that a, a university-educated cohort might have better coping skills, might be better resourced are by definition better educated Mm. than young people of a similar age who aren't in university. Uh, Do you differentiate between the rates of anxiety and depression in university students compared to those in other young people who aren't at college? Well, 
it's difficult for me to give a good statistical answer to that because I guess, you know, it, so much of that is dependent on my geography in terms of where I'm located, right next to a university. I will say, though, that a lot of the university students going through these issues have certainly uh, read a bit more widely about these things. They've accessed a few online resources. And I think there certainly is a consciousness that this is a you know, a problem uh, that they need, that an issue that they can deal with, that they can access resources to sort out. Uh, and there is that kind of maturity that maybe I, I didn't have when I was back at university maybe 10 years ago or so. So I, I wonder if that's a bit of a positive trend. Hmm. But I, I, the thing I want to bring up just from what you were just saying is access to more information and often can be helpful but it's also the worst thing that you can do at two o'clock in the morning is start googling some things that are going on for you and like start going down the rabbit hole and then you know so on and so forth and the fact that the study that you were talking about peripartum was um in you said the millennial group there's also the contributing factors of social media and the having to compare yourself to your peers and how am I doing how am I ranking and everyone else looks like they're having such an amazing and incredible life um and when you check in with yourself and that's not the case that can be anxiety provoking and you know spark a whole a whole world of um negative thoughts about yourself as well so i think that's worth considering yeah yeah i think that's mm. right so you're saying it's a kind of a generational effect less yeah about university than more about the, the well, dinosaurs such as myself who don't operate on social media you know we, we don't have those issues <laughs> yeah it's really true um yeah my facebook presence is limited to a picture of a crochet duck and that's it <laughs> and a picture of greenland and that's it. <laughs> Established purely for the purposes of being able to update the Facebook page on um, our radiotherapy uh, monthly uh, broadcast. Good so. on you, a worthy cause. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're here, radiotherapy with me, Perry Partum, and my three colleagues, uh, Dr. Sharma, Lady Gaga and SK are here for our first um, inaugural 2018 show. Uh, and we've got Dr. Sharma talking to us about HIV prevention, some big positive news. Actually. Exactly, some very, very happy news. And yeah. uh, when I read the headlines, it took me a little while to, for it to really sink in and just go, wow, what an amazing turnaround this is. So this is very recent. On Friday, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, uh, this government agency committee, I guess, has recommended that a, a medication called Truvada, a HIV prevention medication, will go onto the PBS. Uh, and this is just huge news, massive news that is the beginning perhaps of the end of the spreading, uh, the active spreading of HIV and AIDS. So Truvada is this pill basically you take every single day and it means that even if you have unprotected sexual contact uh, with someone who has HIV, roughly speaking, there's a 99% chance you are not going to get HIV. Now, this medication has been available in Australia since 2016, but you ha either had to be part of a government trial, and they all filled up really quickly because everyone wants to sign up, or you could pay about $1,000 a month uh, to kind of get on it. But now it's going to be absolutely cheap as chips. So it's quite amazing. So it's not actually a tech, it's not a kind of a scientific breakthrough. It's kind of a, a breakthrough in understanding by mm. government about the risks and the way that which disease spreads. Um, That's right. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a policy win. It's a you know it's it's a, it's a bipartisan win. Like everyone's you know, kind 
kind of on the same page here. Um, but what's mind-blowing is that even just the scientific discovery is not that old either. Mm. So even though Australia's been maybe a little bit slower, like America started uh, providing some medication in 2012, in Australia we like to wait a little bit because of safety issues and probably some politicking as well. Mm. Generally speaking, like we've, we've done fairly well on this. Um, I wanted to give you a bit of a quick reminder uh, to people on what HIV and, and AIDS and all that kind of means. Um, so HIV is the human immunodeficiency virus, and it's a virus that spreads through bodily fluids such as blood and semen, and it's commoner amongst the male homosexual community, people who use uh, IV drugs, although anyone can get it, of any gender, heterosexual, etc. And it works by harming the cells of your immune system, the cells that tend to fight off infections and even prevent things like cancers, etc., from happening. And if the HIV virus starts to harm enough of your immune system cells, you can become this sitting duck for all these nasty infections and cancers. And when you're in that kind of sitting duck phase, well, that's AIDS. That's the acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. And at its worst period in the 1980s, you know, there were just people uh, dying off in their 30s and 40s and even their 20s. And this wasn't just happening in developing world countries, which is what we tend to a lot of the time associate HIV and AIDS with. This Mm. was happening everywhere in the world, in in the Western world as well. It's a very specific moment in history, I think, for um, Western countries. The the movie Philadelphia talked about this um, really movingly, I think. But also uh, there's lots of books um, and other other things from that moment in time which people might not really remember but it was it was an it was devastating for for australia and america and all those other democracies and now you're right it's become a more of a third world phenomenon where people are dying at that rate in those countries because they don't have access to the drugs that we have access to here Exactly, for, for treatment, uh, even that, that's a bit of an issue. Um, and we've had treatment, so to speak, for HIV and AIDS to, in order to prolong people's lives once they get it. But the beauty of this medication is if you start taking it, if you are, think you're going to be at high risk of contracting HIV, maybe because you have a partner who has HIV, and of course people often don't know that they have HIV, you start taking this pill just one pill a day, even if you become in contact with it, you are just not going to get it. So if we can't cure it, at least we can stop its spread. And ultimately, that's the kind of thing that's going to spell the, the end of it. And it's just a in Australia, we've got the target of 2020 when we can hopefully stop the spread of new cases of HIV and AIDS. And if we can kind of pull that off here, well, then it's just a matter of time. We hope that we can pull this off in sub-Saharan Africa as well. I'm uh, by nature a glass half empty kind of guy. And I'm I'm just (laughs) thinking about the, the potential downside of this. And uh, this is maybe where we might be informed by the overseas experience. Sure. If you have a preventative drug, is there not the risk of uh, perverse unintended consequences? I know when the antiretrovirals first became available as a treatment for HIV to prolong life, uh, a response was a decreased condom use amongst the gay community and an increase in other non-HIV sexually transmitted infections. I can see the same risk with this drug, but also the potential for it perversely to to increase HIV rates 
when you think about human behaviour and how many of us can actually finish a course of antibiotics, mm. Mm. you know, a 10-day course of antibiotics, uh, the, the efficacy of this drug, I presume, is reliant on people remembering to take it every day. Absolutely. And there might be this false sense of security that, you know, we no longer have to practice safe sex and so forth because of it. Mm. So this is a really good thought. And certainly, I was reading some of the articles that were written about Truvada and this medication. There certainly were the fears early on in the use, but uh, paradoxically, they've found that while by increasing uh, awareness uh, about regular testing, etc., the, the rates of other STIs that would be prevented by condoms otherwise uh, is, are actually not going up very much at all. So it really is a hand-in-hand thing, which is that, yes, we're going to be using this medication, sure, uh, but by the same token, we also have to advance the cause of increased awareness and increased testing. Um, and, I mean, that issue you mentioned about having to take the medication every day, that compliance, so to speak, that we speak of in medicine. Um, so... In the past, the HIV treatments, you need to take tablets every four hours. And that was a huge issue. Very and you had to keep them in the fridge and all sorts of things. It all those it things. Almost impossible to have a life, really. And yet, okay, fair enough, it's early days at the moment with this treatment. Uh, but what they're finding is that people of all walks of life in developing world countries or in Western uh, you know, uh, countries here uh, are not too bad at being compliant with this medication. So that it seems that once a day regime is something that people can stick to. Can I ask you a question? Would you ever, would it ever be possible that Truvada could be provided on an as-needed basis, sort of a bit like the morning-after pill, if you had an unprotected exposure, perhaps to um, potentially to HIV? Do you, is that something that's in the pipeline? Do you think? Well, they are exploring things like this. Um, they're also exploring other me- your means of taking the medication, perhaps like a, a weekly format or something like that to make it even more user-friendly. Mm. Uh, so that's certainly uh, the hope that, that they can do that because obviously you're never more incentivized to think more about it than the very moment that you're going to be kind of at risk. So those are all options they're, they're looking at and you, know, you really wonder if, it's, if we can just kind of get the numbers of the transmission low enough with this medication that's just going to buy us enough time to perhaps develop those technologies yeah Uh, the other thing that i was thinking about is the kind of the policy dimensions of this so the scientific advances are massive and incredible that from the 1980s when this was like a a terminal illness to Mm. now when hiv in most places where you can access treatment is a kind of a chronic condition um and people can live their lives whilst having HIV. Yeah. Um, but I suppose um, the reason why this is such a step forward is really because it was driven by, as far as I understand it, a policy initiative by the Victorian government and the Alfred Hospital, as you say, in a trial on a trial basis. And the results of that trial were so compelling that they convinced, um, I think, the Tasmanian and South Australian governments to take part as well in reducing the risk to their populations. And now the Australian government has come on board. So I think it really also shows the strength of advocacy uh, for people who are active in this sector, really pushing government, demonstrating results and, and being quite loud and vocal about the interests of the community that they serve. That's exactly right. There's um, There's heroes of kind of all flavours in this story. There really are. Uh, just to see how quickly we've gone from the scientific breakthrough, sure, to, to, to policy breakthroughs and uh, there's, there's people from just all different sectors who've really done their bit and so it's just everyone's victory to, to share in and it's a lot of progress to take space in a short amount of time. It's just a huge win. Oh, awesome. I'm very happy. Good news story. Yeah. Okay. Oh.
Yeah, the cynic in me uh, suggests that the, uh, the PBAC makes uh, decisions based on health economics and somebody's run the numbers and worked out that it's going to be cheaper to try and prevent new infections than it is to try and provide antiretroviral drugs for 40 years to people with established infections. There's a, there's a cost-benefit comes into this as well and I don't think it's all altruism. Oh, no, it's probably not, I'm sure. But, uh, it's, and, but the numbers are literally about a million dollars for lifelong treatment for someone who wants, once they kind of contract HIV. So, yeah, if, uh, if, if that's what it takes to, to uh, convince the, the pencil pushers and the, uh, the people doing yeah, so the, the ledgers, then so be it. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good news story. Um, thank you very much, Dr Sharma. Um, now, let's all get deeply metaphorical. Uh, to talk about Darren Aronofsky's mother, complete with pulsing flesh in toilet bowls and featuring screaming by Javier Bardem. Yeah, there was some pulsing flesh in toilet bowls, just a brief sequence, but uh, an important one. Yeah, uh, I, I imagine they didn't just put that in kind of by the by. <laughs> We'd have to have some kind of purpose. There was a whole motif running through the film about the house somehow being alive, so I, I think it uh, it weighed into that. Mm. But, uh, it's an incredibly polarising film, Mother. It came out last year, uh, it was heavily promoted prior to release. It was promoted as a, as a horror film and a, or a psychological thriller, mm. and I think a lot of audiences went along lured by a big-name cast of Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Xavier Bardem, Ed Harrison, Michelle Pfeiffer, terrific cast, mm. expecting something, and they got something that was quite different, uh, and consequently the film didn't perform well at the box office. I know I did a, a brief straw poll during the break of how many people in the, the studio today have actually seen the film, and I'm the only one, uh, which, which always bodes well for a stimulating discussion, I think, but... <laughs> This is one of only 20 films ever, <coughs> ever to receive an F rating on uh, a website called Cinema Score. I did read that. Which sort of ranks films according to uh, audience popularity. Mm. Uh, other films on that list include the remakes of Solaris with George Clooney, which I didn't think was too bad, actually, and the remake of The Wicker Man, which really was appalling. Uh, but Cinema Score ratings tend to correlate with whether audiences feel cheated by what they saw and mm. people who went along to see a psychological thriller got something else that was really hard to uh, to interpret. If you had to name the genre of this film, what would you call it? Uh, philosophical, depressive, navel-gazing. Uh, navel-gazing navel horror, right? Yeah, it was very similar to a, a large Lars von Trier film about the end of the world a few, ah, few years ago. Ah, the Melancholia. Ago. Melancholia, yeah. yeah. Mm. It was in a similar vein to that, I would think. Huh. And, you oh, know, yeah. perhaps it's... There are some parallels, like because it's well known that Lars von Trier wrote Melancholia whilst he was deeply depressed, and uh, Aronofsky wrote Mother when he was deeply angry at the world and what we are doing to it. So uh, that's one of the themes that runs through uh, the film as well. Film polarised cr critics also. I think it got 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. Some critics absolutely loved it. Best film, film of the century, one critic read. David Stratton hated it. <laughs> anyway... If you are going to see it, it's probably one of these films that you're best advised to see with some foreknowledge of what to come, and that's, I guess, what I'd hope to uh, to provide today. There are psychological themes in it, which is why I've picked it, but we require some, some detailed exposition of the plot, first of all. Uh, we start with an unnamed man and woman who are sharing a house together in a quite idyllic uh, country setting. The very start of the film, we learn that the house had previously burnt down, uh, which killed the first wife of the man. And the only thing that he salvaged from this fire was a mysterious crystal, which he keeps on a pedestal in his study and allows no one to touch. 
The woman in this film is in the process of redecorating and remodelling the house after the fire, whilst the man is a poet who's quite acclaimed but currently suffering from a prolonged case of writer's block. And their lives are disrupted one night by a knock on the door and the arrival of Ed Harris. He's revealed to be a fan of the poet who is you know, very pleased to have a fan around and actually invites him to stay, not just overnight, but for as long as he likes. Not only that, but uh, the next day, this guy's wife turns up and she becomes a house guest as well. And both of them are really terrible house guests. They disrespect the rules set down by the, the lady of the house, such as not smoking indoors, for example. The woman, Michelle Pfeiffer in particular, shows a very unhealthy interest in this crystal that the poet keeps in his study. And she ultimately drops and breaks it and sends the poet into a rage. Otherwise, he's remarkably tolerant of them and their indiscretions, however, and seems largely indifferent to the distress that they cause his wife. The day after the crystal is shattered, this couple's two adult sons show up. Uh, they're warring about the will of the male house guest who has a terminal illness. An argument ensues and one of the brothers kills the other, fatally injures him. I can see some biblical overtones here. Mm -hmm. This is where we're going. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, very much so. Uh, one brother kills the other. Most of the people in the house rush this guy off to hospital. He ultimately dies. When they return, uh, the poet has invited a whole lot of families, friends and hangers-on to some sort of wake for the son that has died. But the party gets way out of hand. More and more guests keep arriving. They trash the house until ultimately a sink collapses and a couple of rooms are flooded and the party ends. Everybody clears out. And the poet and his wife at this point choose the unlikely uh, moment to have sex. And the next thing we know, the wife is pregnant. And the revelation that she is pregnant sends the poet into a creative flood and he begins work on his next magnum opus. We fast forward about 12 months where this work is about to be published. Uh, the wife is on the verge of giving birth uh, when suddenly a group of fans arrive on their doorstep. You know, they're clamouring for the attention of the poet. They want autographs, they want pictures, they want selfies. More and more people arrive and the poet enthusiastically invites them in until literally the house is full to the gunnels with uninvited guests and again they're trashing the place. They're stealing things, they're ripping furniture off the wall, they're uh, generally behaving inappropriately, the situation escalates, we see a riot squad arrive, we see summary shootings and executions, we see scenes of incarceration and torture reminiscent of a concentration camp. Amidst this chaos, which remains unexplained during the film, the wife goes into labour. The crowd, upon the birth of this male child, uh, <laughs> demands to see it and pay it tribute. Are there uh, three sort of men with crowns on? And no, but, like they, but they bring the baby gifts. They bring Jennifer Lawrence <laughs> gifts and right. things to wear and swaddling <laughs> clothes and things. And uh, the husband wants to show the crowd this baby as well and he does so the, the crowd take the baby and pass it overhead like uh, like it's crowd surfing but uh, in, in their enthusiasm in their enthusiasm <laughs> i really wish we were video because then we would see dr the sharma's expression on expression. dr sharma's face yeah it's traumatized <laughs> it's a very traumatizing film oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> what happens in the enthusiasm what happens in the enthusiasm the crowd inadvertently break the baby's neck oh <gasps> And then things turn overtly religious. A whole lot of candles mysteriously. Oh, get now lit. they turn religious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because it was just—it was quite subtle before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
and a priest-like figure presides over the uh, the audience or the the, the groupies at the party essentially eating bits of the baby. You know, it's a very overt Good metaphor for God. communion. Uh, the 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 wife, of course, is outraged about this and terribly traumatised. And uh, in her despair, she ignites a, a furnace in the basement of the house and blows the place to smithereens. And we see both her and her poet husband incinerated by this blast. In the final ten minutes of the film, there's more. There's more. <laughs> Yeah, it gets worse. It gets what? worse. Uh, we see the Jennifer Lawrence character horribly burnt and scarred and clearly in the process of dying. She's picked up by her husband, who's miraculously unscathed by the explosion. He carries her through the burnt-out shell of her house, lays her down, and in what's portrayed as an act of love given to him by her, she allows her to rip open her chest, remove her heart and kill her. Oh, my God. And then the final scene, we see him crush the heart between his fingers. It turns to ashes, essentially, and then from within the ashes, he removes another crystal. And he puts this crystal again on a pedestal, and then we see the house revive itself. And then the final shot of the film is the next wife waking up in bed. So the feminist reading of this particular movie hasn't yet been published, I presume. No, there has been a feminist reading, perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, a lot has been written about this in the non-religious sense, about what it says about male narcissism and mm. the uh, the sacrifices that uh, partners make for their creative husbands and that being classed as a creative forgives a lot of really terrible behaviour. Mm. And I think there's something in that. But really, uh, I think this is a, a religious metaphor and Aronofsky in interviews uh, confesses that that is the case. You know, we gave you some clues at the start about Aronofsky having been outraged at what we are doing to the planet. And the best way to read this film is if you view the poet as God and uh, his wife, the Jennifer Lawrence character, as Mother Nature in, in many ways. And uh, the paradise in which, within which they originally live is a cooperation, a harmony between God and nature. And then with the arrival of man, you know, the Ed Harris is very much an, an Eve uh, sorry, an Adam character. He does injure himself at, uh, in their house, and we see one scene where he's, you know, got a cut over one of his ribs, oh. uh, his, his flank, and then the next day his wife turns up, who's the Eve character. Yeah. So you see the woman created from man's rib. Uh, then the uh, this crystal in the study that uh, God has forbidden anybody to touch. It's like the forbidden, forbidden fruit. Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer picks it up, it drops, it shatters, and uh, paradise is lost. <coughs> the next day, the two sons turn up. You've got the Cain and Abel yeah. figures. Yeah. The fight ensues. One dies. Then the mass of people invading paradise is the proliferation of humankind, their disrespect for resources and for their hosts, the will of God and uh, the power of nature. This first uh, transgression is punished by the flood, which was represented by the uh, mm. collapse of the sink and a few rooms being filled with water, and that's, that's what gets the, uh, the, the unwanted crowd out. Mankind has been punished. Jennifer Lawrence then falls pregnant and it, there's an obvious, you know, saviour, son of God parallel here. Uh, the next great work of God is received gratefully and enthusiastically by his supporters who flock to the house and praise uh, the infant son. They kill it. They then pervert the death into this, the, the Christian ritual of communion, uh, eating 
body and drinking the blood of Christ, nature becomes outraged as uh, the world is destroyed by ever-increasing numbers of people. Uh, Mother Nature rebels, destroys the house, and God starts again in what we can only assume is a never-ending cycle. I'm, I'm I told really you I'm a glass half uh, empty type of guy. I just, <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't see this. I, I just, I just don't get it. So, obviously, this movie is a metaphor. The problem is, it's a metaphor about a metaphor. Like, if you believe a lot of the the, the stories of Genesis and you know the, the body of Christ, etc., to be metaphors, not literal truth. It's yeah, it's it's a metaphor about a metaphor. In which case, it's given me kind of nothing new. Mm. So, if, what you, if you like, you can ignore the religious elements and just see it as uh, what humans are doing with the rape of Mother Nature. Uh, for example, we're destroying the planet. Uh, the planet is going to destroy us if we don't take care of it. You can view it at that level. I guess yeah. So I guess that part's new. I guess not in the Bible per se, but yeah, Jesus, the, the rest of it. So they're actually using the story of the Bible to talk about environmental destruction. Um, I suppose the thing that I have a problem with when you tell the story very vividly of this particular movie is this is the reason I don't like Dostoevsky. Um, you know, you get beaten Controversial over the- opinion. Yeah. <laughs> very pardon, what have you done? There's a lot of pearl clutching in this, uh, in this studio right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Set people a lot more than I thought it would actually that <laughs> statement, uh, but just kind of you know being beaten over the head with a metaphor and a, and a message and a kind of a moral imperative over and over again. I like my moral imperatives to be a little bit more subtle and a little bit less overt, I suppose. And all the pulsing flesh and the destruction and the mm, horrible. Look, I guess I guess the way in which. Uh I've explained the storyline helps understand the metaphor, but if you were watching this film cold, you wouldn't necessarily get it. Mm. You know, there's a a suggestion that the woman, uh, uh, the Jennifer Lawrence character, might actually be psychotic. She touches the walls of the house and she can see and hear the beating heart within. She takes uh, a yellow powder for what appear to be like panic attacks when she stops taking this yellow powder when she falls pregnant you could argue that she then descends into psychosis so you know that's the psychological subtext of the film but really it makes no sense if you view it as a descent into psychosis Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily get the metaphors if you watched it cold which is why i think audiences Mm. shunned the film they just didn't understand it Mm. so you said the film was polarizing did you like it I, I actually researched it before I watched it. Okay. I think if I had watched it cold, I would have thought it was a crock. Okay. Yeah. I'm certainly glad that I will be watching it following your summary because I will have a whole new range of insights instead of just raging against the patriarchy, as would be my normal <laughs> approach to such a movie. <laughs> you might have read it on the feminist level. Yeah, there'll be another feminist <laughs> writing yeah. after this. Knowing what he's trying to say makes it a much more interesting and enjoyable yeah. if having Jennifer Lawrence's heart ripped out of her chest can be viewed as an enjoyable <sighs> experience. Never. Wow. Gosh. Okay. No, that's actually very useful for me. Yeah. And I also agree. I would never have been able to watch it um, cold. I probably would have switched off halfway through and yeah. gone and done anything else. Garden, <laughs> mowed the lawn. Yeah. Renovated. Anything. Um, we're going to talk very quickly about one of Lady Gaga's preoccupations recently, which is <laughs> the, the marketing disaster that is Doritos Ladies Corn Chips. I just... Oh. I'm sorry to get so excited about this this week, but it's just made me so mad. Yeah. And I know we talk about, we're a show about mental health, but my mental health just absolutely went nuts this week yeah, no about worries. this Go silly, ahead. silly thing. So for 
anyone who doesn't know, I'll just bring you quickly up to speed. So um, an unnamed um, producer of corn chips this week um, released some consumer insights um, about their corn chips um, that they had been polling men and women. And apparently um, the female participants in this uh, market research returned results saying that they um, didn't love how crunchy the corn chips were and it made them feel self-conscious, that the flavour stuck to their fingers and they had to lick it off and, and that was something that they did not enjoy doing in in public um they were reluctant to pour the broken up pieces at the bottom of the packet into their mouth uh, because oh my gosh what if someone sees and that they don't fit in their purses the giant bags and so the company's um response to this was to create a product specially for ladies so lady corn chips um because that's exactly what we need in the world (laughs) so i'm sure as you can imagine the uh feminist corner of the internet exploded um and i was quite heartened to see uh, a few <laughs> videos of women obnoxiously chomping on um, corn chips in a very traditionally what we would call unladylike manner to which you've also contributed your own share i perhaps have yes. i did i did perhaps make a video myself <laughs> we had to <laughs> but i just it got me thinking as to why so many things need to be gendered. Why do we need lady... Like, we don't need lady corn chips, it's just a fact, but why do people feel this compulsive need to gender everything? The gender binary is something I've been thinking a lot about lately as well, and I guess that's just where it all tied in for me. Is it a compulsive need, or is it really just uh, the ultimate in consumerism? I mean, the, the Ford Fiesta <laughs> isn't going to attract too many male buyers, for example, <laughs> so car companies build a car that appeals to women, supposedly on the basis of market research. Is this any different? Well, I, and I guess that's a valid observation in that um, this is what some people have been saying online. Like, it's based upon their market research and, you know, they're only making a response that is um, derived from research that they had done. But I guess it just became such a big online issue because uh, people were just saying that it's not reflective, uh, even though there's no research to support it, um, that it's not reflective of the current, you know, environment in which we live. And so you know, why, 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 why in 2018 is this something that we need to be focusing our efforts on? I agree the gendered corn chip does seem a bit over the top. Yes. So what they could have done is instead of making a gendered corn chip, they could have made it like a, like a ninja corn chip, like for people who want to go stealth style. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then everyone would be happy, hey? Yeah, that's oh. right. I want to, yeah, I, yeah, that's what I want to ninja do. Ninja chips. Dr. Sharma, perhaps you should uh, reevaluate your career and potentially work in advertising. I'm going to go straight to the CEO. <laughs> Are these new corn chips like stale so they don't crunch? Well, what have they done there? Oh, I don't, I don't think they're actually... Pre- the no, product? they're actually not a thing yet. I oh. think it was more of an announcement of a future product. Oh, really? So no, like, um, ladylike little pink package or anything like that? <laughs> Not yet. Like Not yet. I think it's been shot out of the water, um, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, free tampons with purchase. Great. <laughs> Tax included. <laughs> uh, look, I hope that's an initiative that's died. Yes, it died a very welcome death, thankfully. Mm, okay, because of the media backlash? I think so. So um, the company released a statement saying that um, it was something that they regret and blah, blah, blah. And so there's also talk, is this, um, was this a, a media stunt, you know, just to get a rise out of, out of people and you know, generate more publicity for the company, so, That's right, which is why I'm refusing to name them. Uh, <laughs> I have to admit I did name them at the very outset because it turns out we're allowed to do that kind of thing here. I didn't realise that there we had go. complete freedom to name all sorts of brands here on Triple. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning more every day. 
Okay, we better we better wrap it up. Thank you very much, listeners out there. Um, nice to speak to you again um, for the first time in 2018. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 